0: This is from Justin McCain, a podcast where Mike Robertson and Bob Rue watch one critically acclaimed film and one terrible film and talk about how they are the same.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast thing. Yeah, that's Mike and I'm Bob. And on
0: to this week's episode, what, what do we watch, Mike?
1: This week on From Justin to Kane, we watched two movies. The good movie, 12 Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet. Lumet. We, Lumet. Yeah. <laughs> we watched... Okay, I'll start over. <laughs> Edit this out. We... <laughs> Okay, for the good movie, we watched Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, directed by Sidney Lumet. I believe it's Lumet. <laughs> well, what? <laughs> <Peace>?
0: <laughs> no, it's Lumet. It's Lumet. I actually, I don't, I don't know. It's Sidney Lumet. I know. I've heard him say his own name. And he well, goes,
1: "Hi, I'm Sidney Lumet." I've only read excerpts of his book, and he does not. What, like phonetic she, pronunciation of his own name and he does italicize
0: four-char. the T which means you either emphasize it what <laughs> no, I'm just, kidding, just talking out of my butt alright let's do it uh, and okay the, oh the, so the good film is 12 Angry Men
1: the good film was <laughs> <Jesus. laughs> this is going off the rails <laughs> we haven't had our pizza yet uh, um, the good film is 12 Angry Men directed by Sidney Lumet yes uh, the bad film Arguably, was uh, The Babysitter's Club, directed by Melanie Mayron. Mm-hmm. What, what else has she done? Well, she used to be an actor on the TV show 30-something in the 80s. Okay. Which was a comedy drama. Um, and then she went on to direct films and television. She had a very prolific career. Don't have the IMDb page in front of me, but I know that she has directed the television show Glow, episodes of... And Mean Girls too, which I was not aware even existed. Wow, that's that's cool. Yeah, and those—that's just a smattering. That's a really interesting career that she had. Yeah, or has. Yeah. Um, what else has Sidney Lumet directed? Uh, well, he's
0: he like he's a big deal. I he mean, a big deal, this yeah. movie was his first feature film, which is wild, which is insane. But he he comes from theater. He directed a lot of noteworthy plays, and then he directed live TV. For a long time. That's where he like cut his teeth. Oh, okay. Um, And 12 Angry Men was originally a live... It was a a 47-minute episode on Playhouse One.
1: I know. I saw excerpts of it on YouTube. I started watching the whole episode. You watched the whole thing? No, not yet. I didn't finish it. I'll probably
0: watch it later. Uh, He... I would argue, you know, like Sidney Lumet really... He directed The Pawnbroker, which is like a really... He like 1964 was a good year because he did The Pawnbroker and Failsafe. He got sued by Stanley Kubrick because well, Failsafe was almost identical to Dr. Strangelove, just not funny. Hmm. I'd argue Dr. Strangelove is a better film. Anyways, Failsafe's a really good movie starring um, Henry Fonda and The Pawnbroker is a really good movie uh, starring uh, that guy who's in, in the heat of the night. Henry Fonda. Yeah, also, <laughs> also Henry Fonda. He's directed lots of good movies. And like in the 70s, he got really good. He did like a Dog Day, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, The Wiz, all seminal classics. Wow. Seminal. Seminal. Seminal classics. He directed The Verdict, which is a very good movie. He did, um, got kind of weird in the 90s. (laughs) Night Falls on Manhattan. Wow. Gloria. Anywho.
1: Well, great. Uh, Well, yeah, he's definitely more prolific slash a better director on a craft level. He's better. Yeah, oh yeah. hundred percent. Okay. So my job for doing a little bit of context research for *Baby babysitters club, surprise, surprise, not a lot of academic work <laughs> done on this film. There's a lot of writing about the books because the books, you know, obviously a gigantic empire. The books had a, like huge fan base, sold hundreds of millions of books and stuff. Movie. It was not a flop, but also not a huge hit. I imagine it did all right. Yeah, it came out the same month, I believe, in 1995 as Mortal Kombat. Oh, wow. So What a what a good year. Mm, what a great yeah. year for cinema. <laughs> uh, I mean, Mortal Kombat is not a bad video game movie. I've never seen it. But Babysitter's Club, not a great film adaptation of a book, but not a terrible one. We were talking about this earlier. Of all the movies we've watched so far, this is definitely the best of the worst movies. Mm-hmm. I would even argue that it was perhaps a poor choice as a bad movie, but also when you're watching it, you're never like, this is so good. There are moments where you cringe,
0: like the mom of, uh, the character who dates Luke, the Swedish guy, Luca, Luca, sorry. She does a bad job and she clearly must be a pro. Oh, the mom. Yeah. like Stacy's horrific- mom
1: has got it going on bad acting wise. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: In a major way. <laughs> yeah. She uh, was, I was like, Bleh. Yeah. Like so I was recoiling a bit just during that scene. I was like, I can't believe this. I actually wrote a note. She sounded wor- like she did a worse job than the child actors in the
0: film. Yeah. I've,
1: I thought. So not an abysmal film by mm-hmm. any means, but not a good movie also. Like there's some serious craft problems with the movie. Yeah. Just uh, even the opening shot of the film. I don't know if you noticed this, but basically it starts with Christy walking down the hallway. Yeah. Uh, If you watch this scene, you notice as it fades from the credits, she's standing there and then she starts walking. It wasn't even just like they cut to her in mid walk. They cut to her and then the director told her to walk and then she started walking. That's the first shot of the film.
0: Yeah. Really, really sets the table. You know what kind of meal you're going to get. Oh, yeah. When the waiter falls on the table
1: it's not an ugly film necessarily like it's serviceable not beautiful it's basically like uh somebody i read a review of this film somebody described it as if this if the books hadn't sold hundreds of millions of copies this would definitely be just going straight to video right and it definitely has that kind of vibe to it it feels like a straight to video movie yeah definitely The, the acting is bad Mm-hmm. Pretty much across the board. But also I was like, "What? what do you expect from a kid's movie? Maybe you shouldn't be too harsh on a kid's movie.
0: So um, also I, I found it really uh sorry, sorry to cut in Mike, but I found it really weird no. that Ellen Burstein was in the movie at all. Yeah. She's a great actress. Who was she helping out? Um, she's good friends with the director and it's like, I'll help
1: you out. Well, maybe. I didn't find that out in my limited um, research I, I'll that available but Bet you
0: money. They offered her a huge sum of money and said, you only have to be on set for three days.
1: I bet you she was a fan of the books or she has a family member who's a fan of the books. Yes. I did it for her grandkids or something. Yeah. Odds are whenever somebody is in in a movie and you're just like, why is this person in this crappy kids movie? Mm -hmm. It's usually for that reason why they're just like, I just wanted to make something for my kids. I feel
0: like that's why. I'm pretty sure she made Requiem (laughs) for a dream for her kids. She did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She was like, you know what, Darren Aronofsky? I like this. This is for my
1: grandkids. I like to imagine that the Babysitters Club and Rick Room for a Dream are part of the same cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> the Burst Inverse. <laughs> oh, no. Where where she she just like she gets her greenhouse, the babysitters <laughs> buy it for her for some reason. They give up everything that they worked for for the entire film. Yeah, Just so this old weird woman that they barely know can have a greenhouse that she's on the committee of for some she, reason. She's got a bad attitude. She's got a bad she's attitude the whole movie. Redeemable. She hasn't earned this greenhouse. Anyway, we're going on track here. But the, <laughs> the point is just like things go awry for this character, Mrs. Habber- Dash. Haberdasher. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh. so she basically just gets into just watching a lot of television and drugs and stuff. Yeah. And then like, her, her son is like a heroin addict. Jared Leto has a cameo in this movie. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he plays a heroin addict. Haunting score. Again. So haunting, yeah. in terms of okay, so in terms of my research for the Baby Club film, not a lot out there. Mm-hmm. This is what I can offer you. So this movie is a based on the books by NM Martin, mm-hmm. who is a real writer but also had ghost writers. Oh. So a lot of books weren't actually written by this woman because they pretty much came out on a monthly basis. Right. This book is a combination of Baby Club book 45, Christy and the Baby Parade, number 86, Marianne and Camp BSC, which makes a lot of sense because most of this movie is set in a camp. And Christy's book, which has no number. And Anna Martin has not did not write any of them. So if she watched this movie and she was like, This isn't, this isn't my work. Yeah, it's because Ghostwriters wrote not. it. Yeah. It's definitely not. <laughs> Ghostwriters wrote books based on her characters, and then another writer came and mashed them together and made a movie which I believe has way too many plot lines. Like like The Babysitter's Club? Because there's so many characters, right? There's seven characters, and they
0: all have a different plot going on. You know what's funny? There's seven, but I think they arbitrarily chose two characters to follow. So it's, it's um, Stacy, who has diabetes, and... Is dating Luca, and then mm-hmm. also the artist. I can't remember her name, Claudia. Yeah, Claudia, and how she's bad at school. The other characters, you never really get anything out of them. Hey, Chris, other than Christy, also the leader. What's what's her? Uh, oh yeah, no, no. But I mean, I mean, like, yeah, she's obviously the protagonist because it's about her dad. But uh those two friends seem a bit arbitrary. Just being like, well, we'll make these two the the B and C plot.
1: Yeah, but also if you're a reader of the books, Mm -hmm. and I was when I was younger, I read some of them, uh, mostly as a dare, but... Oh, really? Oh, yes. We'll we'll get into that once I stop recording. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, basically, I was dared to read a book a a day for an entire summer, Mm -hmm. and I only got 15 books into it, in terms of actually just going from one till whatever 100 that they came out with. Yeah. So, I only got 15 books in. And basically I was getting paid a dollar a day to read a babysitter's club book, which only takes like 45 minutes if you like sit down and do it. You could, you could do it. You could crank them all out. You could crank them all out every day as an adult. Would your, would, would your intellect expand
0: even slightly after reading 100 books?
1: I would say my intellect would definitely not expand, but my empathy might. Okay, wow. Because the books explore a lot of themes that are very progressive and or like there's a book about racism. Oh, really? Claudia is getting like slurs hurled at her. Whoa. And she's got to deal with it. Also, Jesse gets a lot of racism too. Really? Yeah. Those are heavy books. It's interesting, yeah, that they were just like, okay, we got these two characters who aren't white people. They're going to be- Let's make this racial. Going to make it racial, which is like maybe a bad move, but also I think it exposed a lot of little kids to those issues in a non-preachy way. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, I, this is the purpose of those
0: books—is to like bridge. Yeah, bridge those conversations and be like, "This is, by the way, the world you live in. This is the thing you yeah. should know about it, and start a dialogue about it." So that's cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those books definitely did their job. Um, another fun fact: the VHS tape can be seen in a Seinfeld episode. For whatever reason, it's in Newman's apartment. I don't know what that's suggesting about the character Newman, but when you go in Newman's apartment, you see that he's got the Babysitters Club on VHS. Wow. that's just a fact i found i think on imdb imdb's trivia page um also like scholastic the book publishing company Mm -hmm. branched out into media in 1995 when this movie came out uh so they were making movies and eventually video games and stuff so they went from just being like a lowly multi-million dollar book conglomerate thing into like a media conglomerate thing so they were just like look at all these properties we got in our hand why are we not making cartoons and tv shows and video games and all this other stuff, so. It's a good business. Yeah, but from what I understand, Scholastic kind of went downhill after that because they got too greedy. RIP. Well, I mean, no, they're still around. What? Okay. Well, <laughs> RIP <laughs> Scholastic's uh, reputation. O-O-G Scholastic. Yes, the, o. G. Scholastic. Uh, the old Scholastic can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> it's dead. <laughs> it's RIP'd. Okay. Wow. Cool. I mean, yeah, not a lot of super interesting facts. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of the stars of this film went on to other things. Yeah. You might remember Rachel Lee Cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's her face? The girl who played Dawn. She was Alex Mack. That might be before your time. It is. but She was like a big TV star for a while. Oh, cool. I think that's pretty much it. Oh, Austin O'Brien, the, the guy. I think that's his name. One He played one of the boy sitters. Right. He was like a teen heartthrob for a while. So oh, he was the a one big with get. black hair. The, the no, not that. Oh, the guy. other one, the blonde one, the yeah. horse rider. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary Marianne's boyfriend. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, Alan Gray. Who knows what's up with that guy? <laughs> that, that guy was he was wild. He was so wild. <laughs> I feel like the movie kind of distilled teenage relationships or preteen relationships, I guess, more into like a pretty, I'd say, relatively accurate package. Yeah, just because like he was all all about Don, but there's that one moment where he where he was about to ask her out or whatever, but then he started turning into a bird, and then she was just like, "What the hell's up with this guy?" And she walks <laughs> away. Then he like gets angry at himself for doing that, <laughs> as like he has some sort of inner demon that he's like battling with. Yeah, which is just being an awkward idiot. So I don't know. And we we we've, we've all done it. We've all we've all birded. We've all birded once in a while. Yeah, ask somebody
0: out you like, and then you. Tell them you it makes you want to fly.
1: Yeah, but also the, that movie Alan Gray is there to teach us the lesson that your greatest enemy is yourself. Yeah, you have to like get past yourself before you can you know do those things. So he was true. the one. He was the only one holding him back because for whatever reason Don was willing to go on a date with him, which was not believable no that was a strange she, she was strange like, end to their arc even though they're in grade seven or six or whatever she was like miles out of their out of her out of his league oh yeah for sure alan on Gray every was, level oh yeah he was intellectually bad. socially socially like just, yeah. yeah yeah she was also just as an actor she was the best actor in the movie
0: yeah she she i mean had, alan had Burstyn was good yeah but they had a scene together twice, and that was that was they, the only part
1: where i was this feels like a real movie
0: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's funny no, you're so right. Thank so you. Right. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. That's why I pay you money to sit here and talk about movies. <laughs> uh, what you got, Bob? Uh, okay, so I researched 12 Angry Men, released in 1957, as we know, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet. It was written by Reginald Rose. He, was like, he, he wrote a lot of live TV and worked with Sidney Lumet, and then he was like, hey, man, I got an idea for a show. And then they did it live. Sidney Lumet did not direct the live version, but when when they bought the screenplay or whatever, uh, Henry Fonda was like, I want Sidney Lumet to do this. He seems like a solid director. And he was. Um, this was a strange film. So it was sort of at a time uh, when courtroom dramas were really popular. They were coming out and continued to come out afterwards. Like You had like uh, Anatomy of a Murder... Uh, to, just before I believe and To Kill a Mockingbird came out a few years after and there were a bunch of other courtroom dramas and they were all about the courtroom. This was the only one that sort of subverted that and put the emphasis on the people actually in the jury because normally the characters are the people on the legal team right, or the people who are on trial. But this was purely about a bunch of strangers. So it was like narratively it was a very weird move especially for this, this sort of this sub-genre of a dramatic film. Um, and it also uh, it dealt with like uh, ambiguity and emotional prejudice and sort of misguided decisions. Nobody in the film is a bad person. No, they're all flawed, and that was also sort of a strange uh, approach because it, it 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 wasn't clean. It didn't clean things up and be like, this idea is bad, and and this is a really wholesome representation of it, or or a really uh, idealistic representation of it. It was very complicated, and even at the end, there was sort of this like solidarity between all the jury members but they still you, you don't feel great you feel yeah. satisfied as a viewer but even when when they all say not guilty you're still you're not you're not it's not clean it's just not clean so that's why it was such a potent movie i think and really really good and that's also sidney lumet's forte a little fun fact about the camera work in this movie uh it starts off with wide angle lenses and all the camera uh, placements are above eye level and then as the movie uh, plays out. The camera lowers itself, and the lenses get longer. So it builds this sense of claustrophobia as the intensity grows and, and the discussions grow. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a that's a cool like sort of cinematic technique that Cindy Lamet and his DP chose to do, and it's very subtle. You don't notice it. It's kind of like um, uh, oh my god, Streetcar Named Desire. They like shrunk the set in the movie to build this sense of claustrophobia and tension. They just Sweet. Kept, they pushed all the walls in. Uh, this is sort of similar, but they they did it with lenses and camera placement. So,
1: Did you know about the Babysitter's Club movie? That the film was, starting at the beginning of the movie, it was filmed using cinema lenses. And uh-huh. By the end of it, they were also still using cinema lenses. Wow. And it was also, they made sure for the entire film, <laughs> to press record on the movie. <laughs> I did not know that. That was the degree of craft on display. <laughs>
0: At first I was like, are you making fun of my trivia? And then I was like, oh no, you're making fun of <laughs> Babysitter's Club. BSC. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, when they screened the movie, so Henry Fonda, this is the only movie he ever produced, and he hated producing. He, it lost money. He had to waive his salary. He also thinks it's one of the best movies he's ever made. When they screened it, the final product, they all, um, uh, the whole cast and Sidney Lament and the crew all sat and watched it, and Henry Fonda walked out before the end, and he, but before he left, he like grabbed Sidney Lumet's shoulder and said something along the lines of, this is marvelous or this is a masterpiece or whatever, and then walked out. But he never he's never seen the whole movie.
1: What a fool. Yeah, it's like Johnny Depp hates watching himself too. Hmm. I don't understand actors who are just like, I'm going to spend a lot of time making this thing. Never going to see it. Yeah. It's going to live on in their brain, I guess. I, I guess. He, Johnny Depp's not even remotely interested what you know the lone ranger is like <laughs> <laughs> if it's any good
0: yeah he'll never, good? he'll never know he'll
1: never know but he, also when
0: you live in that that weird purgatory of public reception you're safe yeah because P- it doesn't matter what
1: people think of the movie if you haven't seen it you can't make a verdict it's true also he is in many ways a luckier man than us truly because he will never have seen the lone ranger whereas we all, <laughs> we, we all have the potential to yeah yeah i i saw the first 25
0: minutes and? I shut it off. There you go. Another fun fact about 12 Angry Men.
1: No, oh, no, no. It was Now, we're, now, we're, now we're talking about <laughs> Johnny Lone Johnny Depp and the Lone
0: Ranger. I don't know. I love Army Hammer. Anyways, uh, 12 Angry Men was nominated for three Oscars and lost in all three categories to Bridge on the River Kwai. We should do that movie. My grandpa's film. favorite movie. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah. It's a classic. I love it. David Lean. Do, so do. good. Do, 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 do,
1: that's the song they whistle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact, uh, Lumet during pre-production, he would lock up the cast into a small room for hours on end and make them run their lines just to build this tension and the heat and get them really into the in into the feeling of what it's like to be claustrophobic in a room arguing. And he did that to them for weeks in the, in like the tiniest room. So it was really confined and really restrained, which is, I mean, it reads, I think. Um Yeah. Um. As far as uh, uh, fun facts, I think that's about it on on my end. Really? Yeah, it's a pretty short page.
1: Also, one thing that you didn't mention, which you might be mentioning later, none of the characters are named. Oh yeah, they're all numbers. They're and all just Henry numbers. Fonda's number eight. Yeah, and the other characters that they talk about also don't have names.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's um, and also like the identity of the person on trial is never defined. You never find out like their ethnicity, their name. Uh, so all the characters again. That's a weird narrative decision to not but name anybody,
1: but an effective, effective one, I think, in this case.
0: I think so too. Um, oh, oh, one more thing. This film is commonly used in like business schools and uh, other scenarios and classes uh, to illustrate um, like conflict resolution. Yeah, so like to to this day, it's like a textbook example of like this is how you should behave if there is major conflict or. Combating ideas in a group of people who need to collaborate.
1: Basically spend all day in a room and get go through the same process over and over again. It's yeah. been like, what do you vote? Not guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. Yeah. Oh, you voted not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Guilty. It's like, oh, guy, why are you voting guilty? That's this movie in a nutshell. Yeah. Guys, get on the same page already. We still have 90 minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> movie's only 93 minutes long. I know. And three minutes in, I was like, guys, get it together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And also, it almost plays out in real time. Almost. Almost. Yeah, it's pretty damn close, which is another weird thing.
1: But also, I feel like that works to his detriment in a way. Because it's like, so they're in a room for an hour and a half. That's not that long. I've been in a room with you for an hour and a half. Yeah. Pretty much since I got here.
0: Yeah. So. It's a bigger room and there's less people in the room. No, and another thing is this, this film almost takes place entirely in one room, which is interesting. There are three minutes of, of screen time in other rooms, but the majority of the film takes place in one room, and it almost plays out in real time, which was pretty weird. For It's still weird, but that was a very uncommon thing in 1957, uh-huh. and just yeah. in the 50s in general, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s.
1: This movie took a bunch of risks and yeah, it paid off.
0: It really paid off. You know it movie tanked at the box office though.
1: Well, do you know what movie didn't take a lot of risks? And it Oh it kind of paid off. What? The
0: Babysitters Club. Oh, wow. Cinema is dead. Cinema That's is dead. That's what you just told me, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Aye, aye. similarities
1: between these two movies mike so we picked both of these movies randomly we just kind of like each picked a movie and this they both just happened to be ensemble movies so that's just like an instant similarity of you got 12 angry men you got eight Eight. girls Mm -hmm. teenage girls who are not angry but like sometimes kind of passive aggressive i'm looking at you claudia
0: sometimes they're angry Sometimes sometimes they're angry yeah get upset at their parents or at their the financial situation of the babysitter's club. That's right. <laughs> you know. This, they get angry because they use how you process that stuff. So it's yeah. There's,
1: there's like the, the visual similarity of a large group of people coming together for a common cause mm-hmm. both thematically and also just as a visual thing that you see in the film. Yeah. Is <clears throat> is just there instantly. May I may I second that by adding an addition
0: to that similarity. Both films have scenes where there's deliberation that occurs inside of a room and there's like a quote-unquote foreman. So in um, 12 Angry Men, there's like a foreman, like sort of like the leader, and it's like the Henry Fonda character. Uh And then in uh, Breakfast Club, it is... Christy. 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 Jesus. Uh, Yeah, Christy. So both both films
1: uh, do that. Also, both of those characters are played by uh, actors who are of a yeah. Hollywood dynasty dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because Henry Fonda is of course of the Fondas mm-hmm. and, uh, Rick, I can't remember the name of the girl who played Christie, but she's the daughter of Sissy Spacek. Mm hmm. So, um, yeah. So that's an eerie similarity. I dare I say eerie eerie. Yes. Uh, I will say, um, Stacy,
0: the treasurer is from New York and that's mentioned early in the film, and
1: the film 12 Men takes place in New York. In fact, Babysitter's Club, they go to New York. Oh, that's true. And they, yeah. they even show the steps of the library, which look eerily similar to the steps of the courthouse. Yes. So there's. So like, that's another similarity. Babysitter's Club is set in the fictional town of Stony Brook, Connecticut, which is not a real place, apparently, <laughs> but it is very close to New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's a drive away. It's a drive away. So <laughs> So it kind of just explores East Coast tensions, I guess. Yeah. Um. Both films teach you how important it is to consider other points of view. Yes.
0: Uh, both films uh, explore a group working together to reach a consensus.
1: Like the thing is, there's a lot of themes that tie these two things together. Yeah. Both are about responsibility. Yeah. Because the jurors have a responsibility. The so babysitters have a responsibility for the lives of these kids. They don't want these kids to die. One of them almost walks into traffic. I will say the um, the Swedish guy. What what is his name? Luca, Luca. Okay, I I know all the characters. You don't. You just need to ask. <laughs> okay, great.
0: <laughs> that means somebody has to know the characters. Uh, Luca looks like a murderer, mm-hmm. and Twelve Angry Men is about murder. Yes, that's another similarity <laughs> between these two
1: movies. The thing about N- Luca, an immigrant. Yeah, he's given a flag as a gift because he's gift. supposed to be the baby cousin. He says that's very nationalistic of you, which. Nowadays, if somebody said that in a movie, you'd be like, "That's kind of an eerie thing to say, mm-hmm. At the time, it was like, oh, whatever, it was flirtatious and it's playful. flirtatious, yeah, but in Twelve Angry Men, there's also a very nationalistic character, the guy who is explicitly racist, yeah, and has that weirdly long rant where he just keeps ranting and then everybody poor just people. yeah, and then yeah. everybody just kind of turns and forms a tableau <laughs> <Just kind laughs> beautiful, of, beautiful they, stage picture. They respond via tableau and then they, everybody, then he's just like, dudes, what's up? They're just like, yo, we're tabloing in protest. We're tabloing because we don't like what your views. Yeah. So it's like Luca in some ways is that guy or yeah. the European watchmaker mm-hmm. who is one of the actual, like the naturalized uh, immigrant Yeah, who is one of the 12 angry men too. You could, you could. Draw a parallel between those two characters. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Another similarity is that uh, persuasion is used by one character to change the mind of a group. Mm-hmm. So in 12 Angry Men, uh, number eight, Henry Fonda, uh, eventually persuades the entire group to think more critically and not uh, move so quickly in their verdict. And then they end up, you know, saving the uh, the accused. And um, I already forgot her name. The main character's name. Christy. So Christy. Uh, Granted, the duration is different because in 12 Angry Men, Henry Fonda, it took the whole movie to persuade the group. And in um, Babysitter's Club, Christy takes literally less than a minute to persuade the entire uh, Babysitter's Club to start a summer camp slash uh, daycare. But they're resistant initially. And then she wins them all over.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is a strange thing because she should be like, hey, guys. We got a business. We got to make money. Mm-hmm. What else do you have going on? We this? have to make
0: $168. <laughs>
1: That's wild. Yeah. That was the 80s. 90s? 95. Wow. 95. That's not very much money. And 12 Angry Men, they're using their brains to solve a murder. Mm-hmm. And lest we forget what happens in Babysitter's Club, where the entire group of sitters does a rap, like a 90s style rap. Oh, yeah. Complete with a boom, boom, ch, A boom, a boom, boom, where the the rhyme, like the chorus is the brain, the brain, the center of the chain. So like the brain is a theme of both films. Today, yes. We, yes. The BSD quick study method, you're gonna learn about the human body. Don't bother, it doesn't interest me. Does the babysitter's club interest you? It's my life. Then get interested.
0: Come on. What Claude didn't know was that we'd come up with a BSD emergency yeah. plan that would make it impossible for her to fail.
1: just watching the movie and you're just like oh wow this scene with ellen burston is actually like kind of well acted or i'm kind of feeling a little bit emotionally touched by the scene you have to think back to the brain the brain the center of the <laughs> machine, where they wrap it better yet it. mike
0: that scene and then the following scene when they're in the exam room that's and, what i was gonna say yeah she's writing the exam and then she mouths it to herself softly and then remembers the answer and then gets a b minus that is horrible, horrible storytelling.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, also the fact that she's like, the brain, the brain, the center of the chain. And then she's like, oh, the brain, the thing that I should never forget about. That Claudia is so stupid that she forgets that her own brain forgets itself is a preposterous is a preposterous but like, also, idea. But if
0: also, if we've read out the lyrics of that song, there is very little information in it. In regards to human anatomy.
1: Oh, yeah. Almost no
0: information.
1: But it's, it's a very... Catchy beat. Catchy beat. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sick hook. Yeah, a super sick hook. <laughs> um, oh, also, mm-hmm. both films are about a group of people, both of a dominant sex. So it's like, in The Babysitter's Club, they're all women. In The Angry Men, they're all men. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or is predominantly just one sex. So, uh, and then in, within each of those groups, uh, everybody has their own journey, Mm -hmm. which is like, I mean, that's an obvious similarity because in storytelling, that should be a thing Mm -hmm. where everybody kind of has their own journey, but that's how you know who they are because they kind of are just repeating their biases constantly to you throughout the whole movie. Yeah. You know, a great example is the racist guy in 12 Angry Men or the super indecisive guy who works for the cereal company. He's just like the indecisive serial guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> that guy, that classic, archety- that classic archetype. Yeah. Uh, and in the babysitter's club, that's so true. This is Jessie; She dances. This is Mallory. She's like a nerd, I guess. And then the, <laughs> the most egregious there, I say is Claudia yeah. because she's every time she chimes in, it's not like she has anything productive to add. She's just like, guys, I'm going to flunk the test. Yeah, Claudia, we heard you the first yeah. eight times you said it. And then when she finally passes the test, she doesn't say anything. No. Because her arc is finished. And that's kind of wild. Again,
0: it was very arbitrary who they chose to give a, a, a plot to.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, like Claudia and then Stacy and then Christy. Those three have arcs. No one else has arcs. You, you could give them more. You could give each character more. That opening narration like a weird, lame excuse to be like, now we know enough about each character. Now now the audience cares.
1: Yeah, like Jessie, uh, she doesn't deal with systemic racism at all in this film. <laughs> no, she does. <laughs> when she should be, because that's explored in the books with her character sometimes, not uh, always. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's about boys and, and like not liking gym class or something. Mm-hmm. But also sometimes it's systemic racism. Right. So bad, it's like bad box office. Not, not touched on it in this G-rated film at all. Yeah. It's
0: surprising. Absurd. Absurd. Do we bring
1: up baseball yet no we
0: bring it up Uh, both films uh, uh, have baseball be sort of like a major subject matter yeah so the opening of 12 angry men there's the one um, jury member who's 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 like I want to get out of here I got a baseball game to get to he's constantly trying to rush the jurors Uh, and then in um, babysitter's club uh, Christy and her dad go to a baseball game and also play baseball and then there's also that weird small arc where that one kid can't hit a home run and he swings a bat into his own foot yeah. And then when he does hit a home run, it's with a, like a dodgeball and a shovel, <laughs> which is astounding. And then it hits that mean girl in the tree and she falls into a comedically placed dumpster. Oh, that's brilliant. That so is just goddamn brilliant.
1: Also, that kid has more of an arc than just any of the other sitters. Yeah.
0: And it's two scenes. It literally, it takes three scenes to have an arc.
1: Yeah. Three one minute scenes and you can have a full arc. Marianne. Arguably the best character from the books and one of the most dominant characters in the books. Yeah. Doesn't even have an arc in this movie. She's just kind of the best friend for Christie's BS kind of storyline with her dad.
0: Appalling. Appalling. Yeah. Yeah. She's weird. She, she just like is there in the backdrop being talked to by Christy. Yeah. And then, and then she becomes the bad guy. There's she, a lot of weak, weak. There's so much information about these characters, yet when they chose to adapt it, they neglected all of it.
1: Yeah, she's clearly the most well-adjusted character Yeah, of all of the sitters, because uh, she's got a, like a boyfriend that she's been dating for like an unbelievable amount of time, given that they're in grade seven, or however <coughs> old they are. Yeah, they're, like, they're 13. Yeah, her and Logan have been dating forever. She's kind of super well-adjusted. She kind of is the problem solver. She's the logical one. So mm-hmm. she doesn't really bring any drama to the table in this movie. No, she's well adjusted
0: and like a boring adult already. She's like, yeah, I'm in a monogamous, steady relationship. And like, I kind of got my shit figured out.
1: Yeah. So I'm 13. I'm, I'm
0: 13.
1: <laughs> but um, which character would you say is the Marianne of the 12 Angry Men? Just so we can draw similarity between ooh. the two. The uh, uh, you know what? Which That's, juror is the Marianne? Which juror? In a, in all of our lives, we all have our own Mar- Marianne. I feel like I'm a Marianne. You know, I I'm think, not saying I'm super well adjusted, but, but I feel like I'm that character. I
0: think I'm a Marianne too. Maybe um, I'm trying to just like figure out who's the most boring juror. <laughs> Honestly, at, at first I thought the guy like who, Jack
1: Warden, juror seven. Jack Warden is the least well adjusted. He's the guy who wants to go to the baseball game. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. Is he? he That's is. Jack Warden. Yeah, he was. Oh, I can't later, recognize. He was later the crazy grandpa from Problem Child. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: What about um, John Fiedler, the older man, juror number two? Yeah, he he might be the the similar character.
1: Fun fact about that guy: he was the original voice of Piglet. Really, Winnie the Pooh. I what really makes sense like him.
0: He's a marvelous actor. He's, he's so good.
1: He's kind of the. I would say he's kind of the Marianne, but I also would also say he's the Mallory of the group. Right. Mallory is like the super dweeb of the group. Yeah. Not the dweeb in the sense of Alan Gray, <laughs> but you know what I mean. What about Jack Klugman? Call them by their name. What's the juror's name? Oh, sorry. Shit. Uh, <laughs> uh Juror five. And what does he do in the movie? Or what, how does it describe that juror? It doesn't describe the jury Are you just reading an IMDb? I am. Oh, yeah. A fool. I know. You should be reading, <laughs> be reading the Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah. I was
0: on that earlier. Bob, you well, idiot. I'm an I'm ass. An... Yes. I have another similarity. Well, okay. while, while we figure out, you know what the storyline similarity is going to be? We're going to draw parallels between all of the characters in both films. <laughs> who Who is who in each film? Yeah, some but, of them but, will be but, more
1: of a stretch than the other because there's we're gonna not really an it. Alan Gray of the group.
0: <laughs> no, but we're going to find it. Um, but another um uh relation, or similarity is uh uh they're the either the meanest or the most intense character uh is mean or intense because of unaddressed emotional issues. Mm-hmm. Um so uh it's the um Cokie Mason. Uh yeah, in Twelve Angry Men. Right. Juror number three. Juror number three, whatever yeah, that's his number. And then in um Babysitter's Club, it's the girl who keeps trying to ruin the Babysitter's Club. And then she gets hit in the face with a ball and falls into a dumpster and then gets out of it and she hits a banana peel on her head. Number number six is the the character we were thinking of. Number six is uh, Edward Binns. He's a house painter, tough, but principled and respectful. He is the sixth to ultimately vote not guilty. Uh-huh. Very boring. Very one dimensional. Uh, played by Edward Binns. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah, he, right. he's, he's the guy.
1: Yeah. He's the Marianne of the group. Yeah. Yeah. However, I didn't like that character. No? And I liked Marianne. Like, I liked her in the books as a child.
0: You and I have very different uh, relationships to uh, the The Babysitter's Club (laughs) and the Source novels. Oh, yeah. I grew up with it. I I hadn't heard of it until a few days ago when you said, I I picked this movie. It's really bad. (laughs) And I said, yeah, sure. And I watched it a few hours ago. And it is not good.
1: Deep down, I think I just wanted a, a a huge nostalgia bomb, right? And did it work? Oh yeah, it was very nostalgic. Great, but uh, not a good movie. Do you have another similarity, Mike? Oh, so many. Uh, at one point, somebody faints. Yeah, the old man almost faints. Also, Stacy does because she's got diabetes.
0: Yes, that diabetes subplot really felt like a cheap narrative device that they were like, "Oh, we gotta we gotta make this dramatic somehow." And, and like the diabetes was the thing and they never brought up the age gap. And then he was upset about the age gap. And I was like, I was, I was surprised when he behaved as if he didn't know. Yes. But also because that came out of nowhere. They never addressed it. She, she never had a scene where she was confiding in her friend being like, he's 17 and he doesn't know how old I am. And I'm only 13, which is a pretty wild age gap at that age.
1: Yeah. And we're not the only ones to bring this up. I'm sure. I'm no. sure this is anybody who watches it now and that when they're not a child. like There's if a four-year difference was... between that. But then also, at the very end, before he leaves, he's like, well, I'll be coming back next year. And she'd be like, yeah, and I'll be 14. <laughs> and he's just like, I know. Dude, you're going to be 18. First of all, why are you going to want to date a 14-year-old as an 18-year-old? Second of all, is that statutory rape? I think it becomes a <laughs> felony at yeah. that point. So both films involve a a... a Questionable felony, but you know, they're not going to get together. No, that never happens.
0: No, he'll fall in love with somebody back in Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another similarity is uh, both, both films explore isolation and moments of reflection and focus on what is at hand. So in um, 12 Angry Men, jury duty is obviously a very intense focused thing Mm -hmm. and it, it, it plays out until you're done, until you come to a verdict. And it's the same in babysitters club with a uh, timeout.: That's right. <laughs> timeout is a, is a time of reflection. Uh, you make mistakes, you have to and you ultimately have to come to a verdict of whether or not you agree with the establishment telling you you have a timeout. So either you agree with it and you learn or you decide you don't agree with it and you uh, move forward. Um, so both, both films really explore that with timeout and jury duty.
1: Also, um, both films are just about kids. Because they're trying to just like figure out what's up with this kid. You know, what's his background? Why is he murdering people? And then, um, you know, the Babysitter's Club is obviously just like a bunch of people (laughs) who are like pseudo adults. Weirdly precocious. Yeah. And then also at one point in 12 Angry Men, the line, if it was up to me, I'd slap those kids down before they caused any trouble. Obviously, there's no domestic violence in Babysitter's Club. No. That we see. Mm -hmm. But... Still, the theme of punishing children as a parent because of timeouts. Timeouts and like yelling. There's that one scene where there's like, a, like one guy's
0: like, I'm your dad. And then she, Christy turns around and she's like, you're not my dad. And then runs upstairs. You know, that's a very intense moment. Yes. Uh, with pretty, pretty crazy uh, conflict.
1: Thematically, yeah. both films are about trying to know the answers. Yeah. yeah. And Claudia's storyline, obviously. And then also just the plot of the f- 12 Angry Men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, 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 we... I have one more. What's sure. the name of the
0: of the one boy with dark hair who uh, in the scene is like, uh, "Oh gosh, I like you. You make me want to fly." What's his name? Alan Gray. Alan Gray. Alan Gray dresses uh, in fifties garb, mm. similar to the Twelve Angry Men. He he wears he wears baggy pants and a tucked in shirt and uh, overalls. And I can guarantee you that one of the characters in Twelve Angry Men has a very similar outfit aesthetically.
1: Mm. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's also a scene where, um, you know, juror number three is like, I just want to get out of this jury room. I, I just want to fly. And then he flaps his arms for a while and everyone again ignores him.
1: Well, in a way when Alan Gray does that thing where he's like, I just want to f- fly. And then he flies around like an idiot. And then Don rightfully so is like, the hell and Mm -hmm. walks away yeah that's kind of like that scene where the guy does a racist rant where the guy he can't control what's inside of him yeah he just has to let it out yeah the 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 passion dictates the behavior
0: and then everyone everyone is repulsed by it is repulsed and moves away and removes themselves yeah so so that is a that's a nice nice similarity mike thank you you really found that one
1: i found that one yeah and then also both films feature a token old person Yes, yeah. Like the old guy on the jury who's like super old yeah. to the point where he just like can't even stand up. And then Ellen Burstyn, well, she like really nails it. You know, she's like a good antagonist who's still kind of charming, as all good villains should be. Yeah. Both films also involve uh, a group of characters being brought to their calling by a now archaic form of communication. So in the Babysitter's Club, they have to get their phone calls from somebody Using Claudia's landline. Yes. And in Twelve Angry Men, they all get their job through uh, snail mail. Mm -hmm. Like they get called for jury duty, essentially. Via the mail. Yeah. Via the mail. That's an interesting. Not really interesting, actually. (laughs) That's a fascinating similarity. A fascinating similarity. These films are so interwoven. Okay. Here's one. Yeah. Now this is this is a deep dive. Get ready for this. Take us on the journey, Mike. (laughs) Both films are kind of about the specter of America's past kind of haunting uh, the present. Yeah. Uh, So you have the, the racism, the way that they treat the murderer kid, basically just like all of that kind of below the surface, racism and cultural prejudice and stuff. That is what makes America great again uh, is, is present in this film. Mm -hmm. I dare say it is present in the babysitter's club. Yeah, because at one point when when they find the greenhouse, there's a plaque on the outside and then it says like 1700s mm-hmm. and, like it was built then. So they find this like relic from before America was like America. Mallory has to explain it to them because she's like the nerd, I guess, uh, that America wasn't even a country then. So it's like that's present there. Plus also when they do cowboy day, that's like a weird choice because there's people in like Native American headdresses. So, like, the colonialism that makes America what it is, is, like, present. And it kind of just paraded around like it ain't nothing. Yeah. So, I thought it was kind of disturbing.
0: It honestly was.
1: But also, that was kind of normal in the 90s. It and wasn't
0: kind of normal. It was normal.
1: It was normal. Yeah, it was normal in the 90s. It's very normal in American culture, which is very fascinating. Like, their relation to indigenous people is different than Canada, for, sh- for sure.
0: Oh, yeah, big time.
1: They can just be like, look, it's a costume. Because it's like almost like wearing a dodo bird costume to them. Yeah. Which is really like effed up. Oh, yeah. And it's present in the Babysitter's Club. A G-rated film. Uh, also, at one point, Mallory makes a flat earth joke, which at the time was probably super funny. Now, that would be a very polarizing joke because people wouldn't too even, real, too real. Yeah, people wouldn't even see it as a joke. Yeah, what a weird offhand statement you yeah. just made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I forgot about that weird little sideline.
1: On the topic of politics... Yeah, I found Ellen Burstyn's character to be a bit strange because she would offhand say things like when she was showing off those photos and she was like, oh, this is me when I was in Vietnam. And then here's me when I was in Berlin. I just happened to be there when the wall came down. It's like, why? Yeah. Why is this in the Babysitter's Club movie? Like, why is this character given such a rich political backstory? And we have, there's, there's nothing comes of it.
0: No, and there, yeah, there's a, a few scenes where she, she makes offhand comments. She's like, oh, this is, you know, this reminds me of when I was in Nicaragua or whatever. There's a few moments. And she's like, what? Why? Who yeah. is that
1: for? That doesn't give us anything. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. But it's it's there. Yeah. In a major way. Uh, and on that, major sa- way. on that same token, both films are kind of focused on a invisible child being searched for throughout the film. Like in 12 Angry Men, they have this description of this murderer child and they have an idea of who he is but they don't really know who he is and he's not in the room with them but they're constantly talking about him and they're constantly just trying to figure out who he is and where he will be going yeah the same could be said in the babysitters club with the character and that's in quotes of jimmy tony the invisible child or the invisible friend of the child <laughs> Cause they're always just like, where's Uh, Jimmy Tony? And mm -hmm. he's throughout the whole film. They're they're like, this is a quest that they're going on to find this Jimmy Tony character. And they eventually, I guess, find him. maybe. Right. Giving that one random child who we don't know the name of more of an arc than some of the actual main characters. (laughs) Wow. That's kind of like a similarity between these movies. Like, you know, it's a bad movie when a character who is not important or doesn't really have a name has more of an arc than one of the main characters. That's
0: going back to From Justin to Kelly. But both films explore a strained father-child relationship. Mm-hmm. So in um, 12 Angry Men, the the accused is accused of murdering his father by stabbing him in the throat. Um, and in um, uh, The Babysitter's Club, um, Christy. Christy and her father have a very strained relationship and uh, are dealing with that. And it then as a result sort of strains Christie's relationship with all of her friends because she stops communicating. And on a, on a broader level, there are strained parental sort of um, relationships because in 12 Angry Men, the one juror, the final juror to finally switch his vote uh, admits that he has a very strained, difficult relationship with his son. And um, Christy screams at her, I guess, stepdad saying, you're not my dad and also doesn't communicate with her mom even though she says blatantly that we're really close but in every scene that they're in together they don't even look at each other mm-hmm. you know as, as parent-child relationships do but uh, yeah both films really use that as, as a major centerpiece for the emotional uh, uh, logic and arc of the film uh, okay so those are all the similarities yeah one film is a, is a complete masterpiece that is so fun to watch and
1: the other is 12
0: angry Men. <laughs> you know what another similarity is both uh, both movies have almost identical running times yes Uh, Babysitter's Club is an hour 34 and Twelve Men is an hour 33 33.
1: I know how is this possible that we keep doing (laughs) (laughs) just choosing two seemingly random films
0: yes every movie is the same thing
1: oh both films feature an old woman that is disturbed by her neighbors oh yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah Hey, that's a really good one, Mike. That one's legit. Last thing, I don't know if you have any more, but...
1: I don't, I'm I'm all out. Both films end with the uh, group of characters looking at each other and saying, friends forever.
0: Fun story about 12 Angry Men. When I was eight, it came on KSPS uh, on a Saturday night when they used to play movies. And my dad bet me money that I wouldn't watch the whole thing because he said, it's just a bunch of people talking in a room for over an hour. You're not going to like the movie. And I said, well, let me watch it and see if I finish it. And it shook me to my core. I loved it.
1: Also, you should have said, I'm a child named Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get some perspective, dad. <laughs> Yeah. I have an old man's name, and I am eight years old. Yeah, so
0: yeah, you, you just bet your son whose name is Bob that he can't finish Twelve Angry Men, and guess what? I did. Also, no commercials, so it only took ninety three minutes. Bada bing, bada boom. I I I will say, you know, even though we we've been bashing Babysitters Club, it's fine. It's it's it's, fine. it's it's okay. Like it's the most average film we've done so far. It's not spectacularly bad, and it's not spectacular.
1: Do you think there's like a gendered bias going on that we all have societally? Women's tasks are kind of viewed as superfluous or as less important than men's. These women in this movie, and I use the term women loosely because they're children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. We look at the babysitter's club and we're just like, that's going to be crappy no matter what. Yeah. Uh, even if it's probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. Just because it's just about a bunch of girls and they're babysitting. That's dumb. A bunch of guys in a room and they're just talking about murder. Yeah, this is super serious. This is important stuff. Murder is not necessarily any more interesting and important than you know looking after children and also the dynamics and friendships of friends.
0: I, I think I think you're onto something. Me watching it, I like what what I found about it that was unserious was how poorly it was written. Yes. <laughs> not not necessarily the the gender yeah um, aspect, but I, I I think that's definitely. Uh, it's definitely there whether it's subconscious or conscious absolutely Be, yeah
1: because the, well, I, the reason I bring it up is because we, we both kind of agreed this isn't actually the worst movie no it's not like a terrible movie even on Rotten Tomatoes it doesn't even have really a bad score yeah uh, and generally the reviews are pretty favorable and a lot of people like it mostly out of nostalgia yeah but we still were gravitated towards it as a bad movie because we assumed it was bad yeah because it's the babysitter's club movie because it's a coming of age tale about women Mm-hmm. Uh, and not boys. Right. So, it's like, I wonder if there was a similar thing, not necessarily babysitters, but something about boys coming of age. I don't well, know. What, like Bad News Bears? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like, you I wouldn't like assume a Bad News there. Bears is as bad as the Babysitter's Club. If we're talking about 90s movies, there's a lot of movies like that. I think there's a whole string of them. There's a whole I bunch of them. I can't recall, but. And they're all probably bad, or just as bad if you watch them now. Yeah. And I haven't seen these 90s coming of age movies we, so, we have to go down the rabbit hole. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Youth sport films? Yeah, but there's like, there, there's got to be, uh, yeah, I just wonder if there's like a, a bias that we just naturally have. Mm-hmm. And maybe 12 Angry Men and the Babysitter's Club, probably the worst examples of <laughs> two movies to like draw that, to try and like unearth that, because obviously both so different, yet so similar. So similar. So similar. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. some food for thought, I guess. It is food for thought. So do you want to quickly just see if we can connect sitters to jurors?
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: So bring up, I have all the sitters and that stuff memorized. So we just need to bring up the jurors. Okay. I got the jurors right.
0: Uh, Cast. Okay. Number one, an assistant high school American football coach. As a jury foreman, he is somewhat preoccupied with his duties, although helpful to accommodate others. He is the ninth to ultimately vote not guilty, never giving the reason for changing his vote played by Martin Balsam. Okay. Who, who who do you feel he is uh, most related to?
1: I'm going to just go out on a limb and just say he's Logan. Okay. Yeah. Because he's sporty. Yeah, totally. So, we got so we got that one. So, that's okay. jury number one. Jury number one. Uh, a meek and unpretentious bank
0: worker who is at first dominated by others, but as the climax builds, so does his courage. He is the fifth to ultimately vote not guilty, played by John Fiedler. Did
1: we discuss him as the Marianne of the group? Yeah. Or did we? Who's say, Marianne again? She's Rachel Lee Cook's character who doesn't do anything in this movie, and is kind of known for being like the shy one. Uh, n- n- no,
0: but but I think there there are eight um, club members and twelve jurors. So but I think, we're also I think,
1: hold on, hold on, back up now. We're also <laughs> we also including honorary sitters. So Alan Gray, yeah, and Logan who okay. are boys so, therefore are not reserved the official designation of sitters, right. even though they do look after kids. So we're at 10 sitters. Mm-hmm. Yes. We need two more. Who else are you throwing in? Koki uh, Mason. Okay. And Jimmy Tony. Great. Okay. Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, so, wait, we, did, we decided Jimmy Tony was the murderer. Yeah. So can't do that. Although okay. it is funny. Who, who else is the honorary? That, that kid who hits a home run. Let's
0: throw him in the sure. mix. Sure. All right, great. Sure. Yeah, so a meek and unpretentious bank worker who is at first dominated by others, but as the climax builds, so does his courage. He is the fifth to ultimately vote not
1: guilty. Well, let's say he's mayor. Let's say that that guy is Mallory. Okay, she is the red-haired one who's arguably one of the worst actors in the film. Okay. And number one is what? Number one is Logan. Great. Okay, number three
0: is. A businessman and distraught father, opinionated, disrespectful, and stubborn with a temper, the main antagonist and most passionate advocate of a guilty verdict throughout the film, due to having a poor relationship with his own son, he is the last vote not guilty.
1: Dare I say, I'm gonna. I would have normally assigned Cokie Mason to, to juror number three. Right, but, but I'm gonna actually let's strike the home run kid out. Dare I say that. Christy is juror number eight and juror number three. Beautiful. Two sides of the same coin. The duality of Christy is explored. She is a tomboy after all. Yeah. Yeah. So her juror number eight is Christy in female form. And juror number three is Christy in, I guess her male form when she becomes the tomboy who hangs out with her father. Mm -hmm. And she shirks off all of her feminine responsibilities of looking after kids to go play baseball in the park, living in her own personal man cave for a while. Right. Number four, a rational, unflappable,
0: self-assured and analytical stockbroker who is concerned only with the facts and is appalled by the bigotry of juror He is the 11th to vote not guilty played by EG Marshall.
1: Unflappable and only with the
0: facts. Yeah. Like hyper pragmatic. Definitely not Claudia. No, she's a great artist. She's, she, she lives through emotion.
1: She lives through emotion. She's a, doesn't know anything not, about facts. Not logistical. The brain. The brain. <laughs> a boom, boom. I mean, a boom, boom. I guess this is also a Mallory. I feel like, but dare we assign two sitters or one sitter to the same? Or I, or I think we can. Yeah, I think we're kind of running. We don't have ten. We don't. We don't have twelve. We, sitters. Uh, there, there aren't twelve sitters. So maybe Mallory, me... Mallory and Christy get two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they do. This is already a disaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Christy does get too. So, okay. That's maxed out. Number five, a man who grew up in a violent slum and does not take kindly to insults about his upbringing. A Baltimore Orioles fan. He is the third to ultimately vote not guilty. Played by Jack Klugman.
1: Hmm. The thing is, none of the sitters are into sports. Or uh, like the thing is, you can really. Christy? <laughs> Huh. Well, Christy is such a well-rounded character. <laughs> she is. She's the Super Mario of the group. <laughs> I guess the thing is, is just like either the 12 Angry Men doesn't have well-drawn enough characters or, and the Babysitter's Club has characters who are too well-drawn. Like we know too much about them. Right. Like we know their archetypes too well. Or. Uh, or. Or it's the opposite. So I just really want to say Mallory, Logan, and Christy are the characters for everyone. Yeah. And they, they kind of are. Oh, they, sorry. They kind of are. Okay, so so juror number one, we have Logan. Juror number two, we have Mallory. Juror number three, we have Christy. Juror number four, I Mallory. would say, is Marianne. Oh, really? That's what we agreed on, didn't we? No, we agreed e. G. on. E.G. Marshall? Yeah, I was right. We talked about this earlier. E.G. Marshall.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so. Marianne. Yeah, you're, you're right. So who's number
1: five? Um, yeah, so the guy who grew up in a violent slum... Let's come back to it. We'll come back to that one. Yeah, because none of them are really... No. Number six, a house painter.
0: Tough, but principled and respectful. He is the sixth to ultimately vote not guilty. Played by Edward Binns. Where oh, oh, look? painter. Who's the painter in... Claudia? Claudia. I would say Claudia is number six. Because she's also principled. She gets really upset at Christy.
1: Oh, yeah, she does. Yeah. She does. Good she luck. does have
0: principles. And she has principles. She's like, you promised me something and then it didn't happen and now I'm upset. That sounds like a principled way to behave.
1: Regarding juror number five. Uh-huh. The, uh, pers- upbringing. the person with the violent upbringing. This isn't necessarily the best connection, but I would say Alan Gray. Okay. It's because he's like a bit unpredictable, maybe. Yeah. He's just kind of like, you wouldn't want him to have a knife. <laughs> I would say of both of those people, you wouldn't want to encounter them when they're holding a knife. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Alan Gray is going to slip and stab you. The other guy knows how to stab you. <laughs> he even shows you in the movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number seven, a wise cracking salesman and sports fan. He is the seventh to ultimately vote. Not guilty.
1: I'm going to say that has okay. got to be like, we're not, we're not going in sports here, but uh, Jesse. Okay, cool. She's the one who dances. Yeah. Which is kind of a sport. Gymnastics. You know what?
0: But, but another interesting note here is um, throughout the film, it is blatant that he cares little about the life at stake. And uh, it seems like uh, uh, Jesse not not super invested. Mm-mm. She never really seems
1: upset. Uh, okay, number nine. Okay, a wise and observant senior. He's the second to vote not guilty. He reveals to juror number eight that his name is McArdle, one of only two jurors to reveal his name. I even though he's the old guy, mm-hmm. let's say that this is Stacy. Because also both of them faint, so that's an easy one. Right, nice, nice. Okay, now we're on number 10. Yes. A garage owner, a
0: pushy and loudmouthed bigot. He is the tenth to ultimately vote not guilty. Played by Ed Begley.
1: Which is the most bigoted of all the sitters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's the most oppressive?
0: offensive bigoted babysitter in the movie Mm -hmm. i would say one of the kids who uh dresses up as a
1: cowboy oh yeah so maybe maybe no like the whole institution well should we should we make that luca uh yeah because the next person is a european character that's the thing you know what oh shit yeah no no but the next
0: character is uh very patriotic luca is not Right. So let's make Luca
1: number two. Okay, because we, who we have left is Don mm-hmm. and Luca and I think that's it. Yeah. I feel so, like. So Don, well oh, but we
0: we, we can do Luca twice.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, only if you want to. Because Don is me. the hippie. Um, Don. Well, let's see uh, about number 11. So a European watchmaker and naturalized American citizen who demonstrates strong patriotism. He is polite and makes a point of speaking with proper English grammar. He is the fourth to ultimately vote not guilty. Played by George Voskovec. Uh, that's so hard. Not not Don. Certainly not Don.
1: But also you say that the wisecracking, indecisive advertising executive is Don? Because Don is pretty headstrong, I would say. She knows what's up. Yeah, I would say Don
0: is number 12. Really? Oh, wisecracking, indecisive. Oh, I misread that. The
1: thing is we have eight. We have seven sitters mm-hmm. plus two honorary ones. That brings us to nine. Mm-hmm. Plus one extra Christie because of the duality of her character. So that mm-hmm. brings us to ten. So we do have two non-sitters. Oh, yeah, Cokie Mason and Luca. So we pretty much have to, de- for these last three, we have to decide on whether Luca, Cokie Mason, or Don, Don are <laughs> either of these. And they don't really describe any of them.
0: Because no. none of them
1: are really all that bigoted. Although I would say that, oh, you know what? This is easy. Okay. Number 10, the garage owner, the the pushy loudmouth bigot, definitely Cokie Mason. Okay. Because she's the villain of the piece in a way. She's yeah. the one who kind of like brings, she always brings the sitters together with her polarizing views. Yeah. So, okay. And then number 11? Uh, definitely going to be, let's just say Luca just because he's European. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which leaves number 12 to be Don.
1: Yes. Which is definitely not true. (laughs) (laughs) Let's read it.
0: A wisecracking, indecisive advertising executive. He's the only juror to change his vote more than once during deliberations. Initially voting guilty and changing three times. He's the eighth to vote not guilty. Played by Robert Weber. Yeah, that's not right at all. Would you say that the European
1: watchmaker who demonstrates a strong patriotism is more... You know what? Let's just swap those two. Uh, Don and Luca? Yeah, Don is more the European guy. Like... Don is more Juror Eleven mm-hmm. because he demonstrates strong patriotism and polite makes a point of speaking. And she goes and she kind of is the ambassador to the babysitters and goes and talks to the old lady. Yeah, and convinces her. Yeah, and does the only like actually decent dramatic scene in the whole movie. Yeah, she's the only one with any chops. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. So Juror Eleven is definitely Don, and Juror Twelve is definitely Luca because he is. I wouldn't say he's wisecracking or indecisive by any means, but he's definitely just kind of like the extraneous one who just exists to fill out the numbers, you know? Yeah. Like he's on the cover of the movie, even though he's not a girl. Mm -hmm. And he's not a character anybody has ever encountered before. But he's still there just to fill out the numbers. Not unlike Juror 12. There we did it. Rock and roll, man. So let's just really quickly recount them.
0: Okay. Juror number one is uh, Logan. Juror number two is uh, Mallory. Uh, Juror number three is Christy. Juror number four is Marianne. Juror number five is Alan Gray. Uh, Juror number six is Claudia. Juror number seven is Jesse. Juror number eight is Christy, again. Juror number nine is Stacy. Juror number 10 is... uh, Cokie Mason. Cokie Mason. I can't read my own writing. Juror number 11 is uh, Don. And juror number 12 is Luca. Very good. I think we did it. We did do it.
1: Another similarity, how coincidental is it that there's 12 angry men and 12 characters who are children or teens in this movie? Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. Um, Okay, well, that was the episode. Thank you for listening. I'm glad that we finally did what people have been clamoring to find out, which is figure out which babysitter is which of the 12 angry men.
0: Yeah, we've, we've gotten a lot of mail asking for this. Yes. Like... I, my inbox is overflowing. Oh, same with mine. I had to delete my email because it's it too much.
1: I was getting so many calls on my landline. Babysitter's <laughs> Club Reference. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this. Yeah. Have a wonderful time. Bob, <laughs> you, you are
0: pretty much unconscious at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm awake. I'm awake.
1: No. Hey, have have a good... <laughs> Have a good time.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, we we did it. This is episode number
1: four. Four. That's oh true. my god. So uh yeah, thanks everybody for listening. This has been from Justin and the Kane. Uh uh I'm Bob. I'm Mike. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye.